for us and for our salvation. Those are some of the, the most powerful words that were crafted by the church. Uh, and they were, they were created um, as a culmination of a month-long conference. Um, and they're in what we now call the Nicene Creed. Uh, the Nicene Creed was what came out of a month-long meeting of bishops. It was uh, orchestrated by Constantine. Uh, Constantine was emperor as Rome was kind of starting to fall apart. Um, by accounts, he was a believer. He was the one who made Christianity the official church of Rome. Uh, before that, it was very much a persecuted church. It was, it was his recognition of the church that was important. And then there were all these problems in the church, though. All these different ways of interpreting what the apostles had taught. So he decided, as, as Rome was falling apart, that the church needed to become the foundation of the empire. And it needed to have its own foundation in Christ. So he asked all of the bishops to get together and talk about this. And what they gathered to do was to dispute the heresies that had been spreading and to reaffirm what the apostles had taught. Um, so they gathered in uh, 325 A.D., about a month-long gathering. Uh, there were traditionally, we say there were 318 bishops, um, but the, they gathered to basically decide what the church had actually taught and reaffirm what the church was teaching about who Christ was. Um, their main heresy at the time was Arianism, um, which was that Christ wasn't fully divine and fully human. We tackled that last week, but a lot of what they also taught about and what they made sure they put down in writing was what Christ accomplished. So I want to just go through part of the Nicene Creed. This is the part just uh, that um, deals with Christ. Um, There's the Father and the Spirit are both included, as well as the church as a whole. Um, But um, this is what the words they came out. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. These are the words that the church has stood on for the past 2,000 years. These aren't something new that was created, though, at the, the Council of Nicaea. These were the words that were affirmed, because these were the words that were true and were taught by the apostles. Um, Let's pray as then we'll open the scripture. Father, your word comes to us in so many ways, but it was made manifest in Christ. And who he is, your son, alive, living, shows us who you are. Because of what he accomplished on the cross and because of what he continues to accomplish seated at your right hand, we are able to stand here knowing that we have a place in heaven with you. And so we ask as we open the word today that we can look at these things, look at um, what Christ came to do and came um, 
because of your plan. And we pray that you will reveal yourself even more to us. Help us to understand your word well. Help us um, just to take it into our hearts and live lives that are glorifying to you because of what you have done for us and for our salvation. We pray all this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, as I said last week, um, Christ came and he fulfilled 353 prophecies. Um, Some of these were prophecies that really declared who he was. They declared his divinity. They declared what he was going to do um, that would show who he was as God's son. And some of these were to show what he was going to accomplish while he was here on earth. And that's what we're going to look at today. Um, The the one we want to look at first is the cross. Um, Because the cross is the center of the gospel. And it's the center of the church. And it really is the center of time. Everything stands on the cross. Um, John, in his first letter, writes this. Anyone who does not love does not know God. And as he's talking about this idea of love, he says, because God is love. But in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation is a really big word, um, and it really has only one meaning and one use, and that is in the context that John used it. Because it is making, it's appeasing the wrath of God and reconciling us to him. It's only done through Christ. We can only be reconciled to God through Christ. So we have this great word that, that you should remember and you should just throw into everyday conversation and then, you know, people wonder what it is. Just make sure you can explain it. It is only Christ's sacrifice that is the propitiation for our sins. Um, in Romans, Paul writes this, But God showed his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. All of that is the context. All of that is propitiation. John used one word. Paul used a little bit more. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled by God, to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Let's go ahead and open to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 is um, both of those ideas, uh, it, probably the verse that everybody in the world, or at least everybody in America knows, John 3.16. Um, but that is surrounded by some verses that are just as important. Um, they're... It's one of those things that we, you can say that, but then you should always ask, well, what's John 3.15 say? What does John 3.17 say? Because those are two verses surrounding it that are just as important. Starting in John 3.15, or 3.14 rather. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Christ came in the world to save the world. He didn't come to condemn it. By law, 
we are condemned. Because we can never fulfill the law. But Christ came to fulfill the law. And here he's using something that we don't maybe understand quite the, the same way that the, uh, the people who were listening to him would, because they were Jewish, they would understand the history, um, just as Moses lifted the serpent up in the wilderness. So we're going to take a look at this, because this is um, pretty much a, one of the most important um, things to understand, to understand what he's saying here. Uh, and it, it occurs in Numbers. So if we turn to Numbers 21, um, this will be a little bit more of a detail, so... Uh, if you didn't turn to John because you figured I skip around a lot, this one will stay in a little bit. Numbers 21 uh, is uh, where this occurs, and starting in verse 4. Just read this, and then we'll look at it closer. From Mount Hur, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord, so that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Um, we always say, um, God, take our sins away. Um, it's the same thing they said, God, take these serpents away. But God didn't take the serpents away. Instead, he did something different. He set up, had Moses set up a serpent for them to look at. Something a little bit different than you would expect. Because God could have just had the serpents not come. He's the one who sent them in the first place. But that's not what he chose to do. And there are a bunch of things that we can learn from this. Um, we're going to go through all these, but we can learn of the need, the grace, um, by faith, the availability of it. It's free, sufficient, immediate, and there was one remedy for everybody. The need was great. They were all dying. In fact, if, if nothing was done, they would have all perished. Um, they would have all perished long before if God didn't step in because they would have perished in Egypt. But even after that, they would have perished when the Egyptians chased them. But even after that, they crossed the sea, they would have perished in the desert if God hadn't fed them. In fact, here they're complaining that there's no food or water, but God is providing both of these things for the people. They just don't like what he's providing. They want more. And sometimes we may question that as well. We may want more than what God has been giving us. But he does supply our need. It's done by grace. God didn't need to save them. God didn't need to, to restore them to health after they were bitten. This was the punishment for them rejecting what he was giving them. And it was a just punishment. It was done entirely by faith. There was nothing they did. He didn't say, make this ointment and it'll save you. All they had to do was look. How, how different would it be if he said, well, if you make this ointment and you rub it on your cuts, the, or in your, the bites, you'll be okay. Well, that would be something that we could understand. God showed them how to cure it via medicine. But God didn't do that. He just had them erect a serpent and look at it. They had to take it on faith that they would be saved, and they had to do it. 
They had, they had something they had to do, but it wasn't something really difficult, and it didn't heal them. Their faith healed them. It was available. Um, this wasn't something that was hidden in a tent. It wasn't off on the side of camp. It, Moses placed it where everyone could see it. I mean, they, that was one of the things. He made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. It was, it was high, and if anyone was bitten, they could just look at it. It was readily available. It was free. They didn't, they didn't have to do anything for it. They didn't have to give offerings to Moses. They didn't have to ask for his permission. They just had to do it. It was sufficient. They were healed as soon as they looked. It was immediate. And there was one remedy for all. all everybody was healed just by looking at the serpent wasn't different based on whether you were a Levite or not. It wasn't based on what clan you respond that you were in. It, it, it didn't matter. They all were healed in the same way. This is what Christ was exemplifying. I mean, just as Moses lifted the serpent up in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man, Son of God, be lifted up. Looking at Christ on the cross is an act of faith. But it fulfills all these things. We have a need in sin. We're, we are sinful. But God's grace abounds because he has said that's how we are to accomplish it. It's by faith. There's nothing else we can do. There's, there's no way for us to make any atonement for our sins. Christ is the propitiation. He is the only one. It's readily available. It's available to all. Christ came not to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. All of the world. Everybody. It's free. Again, there's nothing that, that we can do to earn it. We've been given the opportunity. We just have to respond. It is sufficient for all sin. No matter how big, how great, how small, all, all sin is equal in God's eyes. All of it is missing the mark. It's missing God's holy mark that he set before us from before the foundation of the world. He declared it in the law to Israel, and, and they couldn't uphold it, and neither can we. It's immediate. There's nothing beyond giving your life to Christ that you need to, to be saved. It happens immediately. And there's one remedy for all. Whether Jew or Gentile, everyone is saved through Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We all are dead in our sin. We have all died because of Adam. But in Christ we have life. Life eternal. And the thing about the cross is, is Christ died on the cross for our sins. If, if we look at what happened, he then died physically. He was dead. But three days later, God raised him up. And that's what Paul is saying here, that our hope of life is in the resurrection. Our hope of reconciliation with God is in Christ's death. He died to be the propitiation for our sins. But he didn't stay dead. 
God raised him up, and it is in that that we have hope in life, life eternal. Paul also writes in Romans, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We died on the cross, but it wasn't, wasn't us physically. It was our sinful way died on the cross with Christ. And we live through Christ's resurrection. Now, Christ didn't just come, die, and raise, and that was the end of the story. If we go back and we look at that part of the story here in the Nicene Creed, this is laying out exactly what happened. He, he suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He seated the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge his living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. He is seated. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. In Hebrews, and we're going to look at Hebrews here, we call Christ the high priest. Now, there's a big difference between the high priest that we have in Christ and the high priest that the Jewish people had. And we're going to spend most of our time here today because we can look at the fiery serpent and we can see a lot clearer how that is impacted in that one small story. But the priesthood was something that reigned for years and was a lot harder to pin down. The high priest was the one who was in charge and he was the one who would make atonement for all the people's sin in what was called the Day of Atonement. But there's something that that was important about the high priest that was different than Christ the high priest. And if we uh, take a look, let's uh, just turn to Leviticus 4, just before the book of Numbers. Um, This would be the section in Leviticus, we're not going to go through the whole law because we could be here for days and, and still not understand it. But the law has things to say about all the people. It goes through every person, what they're to do in each circumstance, how they're to live. But in this section, it's the laws for sin offerings. And and I'm not going to read all of this, um, but Leviticus uh, 4 says this, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally any of the Lord's commandments about them, um, about things not to be done, and does any of them. And then he goes on, and he, he specifically breaks off at this point. And he starts in verse 3. If it, is, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. The Lord laid the law down. He starts saying, well, if anybody sins, hold on. Before we get there, if the high priest sins, he's bringing guilt on all the people. This is what he has to do. And now he lays out in the next verses, all the way to verse 21, exactly what he is to do. And he's to take this bull without blemish, and he is to sacrifice it in a very specific way. Well, the difference between the high priest that the Lord is ordaining here and Christ is Christ was tempted 
as we are, yet without sin. He didn't have to offer sacrifices for his sin because he did not sin. It makes a vast difference in in the importance of Christ as our, our high priest versus the high priest in the Jewish synagogue and temple. He had to offer that bull for himself, for his family, and he had to do it before he could do anything else. Turning just a little bit later in Leviticus, and we will read this section, Leviticus 16. Um, this is called the Day of Atonement. This is when the Lord lays out how the high priest is to atone for the sins of the nation. It was to happen every year. And there's garments that are to be worn, and there's things that are to be done. But in starting in verse 29... This is what he says about the people and the high priest. It shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourself and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to, to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. Shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting, for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that the atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. Moses did as the Lord commanded him. Earlier he goes through and the Lord gives all the sacrifices um, and how the the priest was to be garbed and how he was to atone. And it's really interesting. He would first have to offer sacrifice for himself and for his family, just the way that we looked at in Leviticus 3. He would offer a bull, and he would have to go through, and he would have to offer the sacrifice. And then, he only then was he able to go into the holiest of holies. Part of the priest's garments were bells. These bells would, he would have these bells on and, and they weren't for any ceremonial reason. They were for the fact that if they stopped moving, then the people know he died. And they know that he walked into the holiest of holies with sin. And you cannot approach the throne of the Lord with sin in your life. That's why he had to offer sacrifices. And they would tie a rope around his ankle and he'd go in and he'd offer the sacrifices and if, if they would hear the bells had stopped, they would pull his body out. And they would know that, that their atonement was not met because the priest went in and, and he did not offer atonement for himself first. And he couldn't offer a sacrifice for the nation until he was sinless. Until he was cleansed from his sin. So that would be the first thing you do. Part of the offering for the Day of Atonement was he would take two goats without blemish. He would take one of these goats, and he would sacrifice it in the holiest of holies to the Lord. The other goat he would take and he would pray over, and they would heap the sins of the nation on this goat, and then someone would take the goat out in the wilderness and they would release it. That's where we get the idea of a scapegoat. That was, that was the scapegoat. They would heap their sins on this goat and free it away from the people. 
This was the idea that, that you still, even offering sacrifices for all of your sins, are not going to be able to get rid of them all. So he would go and he would do that and he would give these sacrifices year after year after year. Without end, they, they were just repetitive. And, and without offering these sacrifices, the people were not redeemed. As I read earlier in Hebrews 4.15, Christ is our high priest. He, he is un, he's not unable to sympathize with our weakness because he was tempted in every way just as we are. Book of Hebrews has a lot to say about Christ the high priest, and we're going to we're going to look at one section in Hebrews 7. And we could we could go through the entire book of Hebrews and we could spend a lot of time there. But it's this idea and it's it's very repetitive that Christ is the high priest. He was our perfect high priest. Just as he was our perfect sacrifice on the cross because of his sinless nature. He is the perfect high priest. So, chapter 7 of Hebrews, towards the end, starting in verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is anointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Moses erected that tent to show exactly how we are separated um, the holiest of holies was a separate place that only upon offering sacrifices could the high priest enter. Just the same, God's throne in heaven, only someone sinless could be there. Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. Now there's a difference between them. One of the biggest differences is that Christ sat down. His work was finished. He was done. He said on the cross, it is finished. And this was in all time. It is done. Nothing more need done by God to restore our relationship. It was done. And he went and he rose from the dead and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Christ was superior in every way to the the high priests of the Old Testament. Um, We're going to take a look here at five ways that Christ was, and they, they come from this passage. He was sinless. Hebrews uh, 7.26 says that, holy 
innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. That was Christ. He was all of those things. But they all amount to one thing. He was sinless. He offered himself as a sacrifice. He was only able to offer himself as a sacrifice because he was sinless. That's what Hebrews 27, 27 says. He had no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins. He was sinless. And then for those of the people. Instead, because he was sinless and he had no need to offer sacrifices for himself, he did it once for all when he offered up himself. He offered himself as the one sacrifice for all of our sins. Once and for all. That's, that's the biggest one. Um, verse 27 says that once, those, those words, once for all. He did it once for all. And the reason that's important is because in the Old Testament, we just read through the, the entire law and the entire sacrificial system was an image of what was to come. It was God's way of showing the people what the Messiah was going to do. They were looking forward, and all of those that were saved by faith were saved by faith in Christ. Everyone who was in the Old Testament that that got to go to heaven, they did it by looking forward to Christ. They looked for him on the cross. Now, we're looking back to Christ. We're looking to what he accomplished, because our salvation is also found in Christ. Really, the the center of time, the center of history is Christ. And so, once and for all is is an all-time encompassing. It's it's pre-his incarnation, and it's post-his resurrection. It is at all times true that Christ is superior. He was appointed by divine oath as a son. This, This one... It's a little bit more tricky, but in uh, verse 28, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, points a son who has been made perfect forever. Christ is perfect. Um, Psalm 110 says it this way, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's a priest forever. Now, Melchizedek was the high priest essentially before the priesthood began. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time in the Old Testament. We, we could spend three, four, five weeks just trying to explore that. If you want more information on that, Curtis did an entire CE class on Hebrews, and he went into great detail. He has good notes. So if, if you want to look that up, he's a good reference. Um, because he does have all those notes. But the important thing about that is the beginning of that, what God says, you are a priest forever. He's talking about how Christ is a priest forever. It's the same words that are said in Hebrews. He has been made perfect forever. And that's also how his ministry is. It is forever. He has been made high priest for all time. 
And you can go through this whole passage, but it is summarized in Hebrews 8, in the first two verses. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The Lord set up this tent. He is the one who put Christ at the center of everything. Two weeks ago, we were looking at the Father and his work. The Father set this all into place. And he said it long before Christ came to the earth. He set up the whole entire Old Testament sacrificial system as a shadow of what was to come. It was where they were all looking. They were all looking forward. We are all looking back. Just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness to save the people from the fiery snakes, so too must the Son of God be lifted up. We look to Christ on the cross because he has been made a propitiation for all of our sins. Let's go in prayer. Father, you set the wheel in motion. You set our entire history from the beginning and the foundation of the earth to the now to Christ's second coming, and you put it all on the cross. All of history looks to the cross and looks to Christ on the cross, and those of us who believe know it to be true. And I pray that if there is anyone here that, that has not looked to the Son, has not looked to Jesus Christ raised up for salvation, that you move their hearts. As we know that our hope is found only in Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. He is the high priest raised up and then seated at your side. We pray that we can be looking to him for all time. Because he is a propitiation for our sins. We pray all this through his holy, precious name.